This is from James chapter one. My dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. Therefore, get rid of all moral filth and the evil that is so prevalent and humbly accept the word planted in you, which can save you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Lord Jesus, give us expectant hearts, open hearts, Lord, to hear what you have for us. In Jesus' name, everybody said, amen, amen. I'll return to neighbor and just let them know how good looking they are this morning. <laughs> we are in a series on uh, cultivating emotionally healthy relationships. And we are calling this series, it's not, it's not you, it's me. And even though this is a phrase usually used when you're breaking up with somebody, and what it really means is, no, it's actually you, uh, we're, we're going to take this phrase on its face. And actually, uh, there, there is a truth to this. I don't know if you've ever uttered that phrase and actually meant it. No, 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 like, really, like, you're, you seem fine. I, I'm a mess. And, and. I am not helping you live your best life in any way right now. And so we're using this as kind of a wink to recognize that if we're going to be people who are emotionally healthy, uh, who are emotionally mature, i.e. we're going to be mature followers of Jesus. You can't be a mature follower of Jesus and not be emotionally mature because we are, uh, the Christian life, the Christian story, the Christian faith does not divide up uh, emotions um, and, uh, and, and physicality. This is our premise for the series. Emotional health and spiritual maturity are inseparable. It is not possible for a Christian to be spiritually mature or nature. It's a typo from last week that we didn't fix. While remaining emotionally immature. It's not possible for a Christian to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. And so this week we want to talk about listening, listening incarnationally, like listening deeply. We're going to go through some good old-fashioned like kindergarten lessons, because if you're anything like me, it's the most simple things that often are the hardest to actually embody and enact. And so I wanted, I wanted to give like a, a, a hand you like a little a physical thing to consider, to wrestle with, to think about. Um, to kind of have in your mind as we go through this. So the text says, be, um, be quick to listen, or be slow to speak and quick to listen. Right? Be quick to listen, slow to speak. And so uh, oftentimes when we talk about like listening to God or being open, we, we, we talk about having this sort of posture. There's something this that communicates for a lot of people throughout, across a lot of cultures that communicates like an openness. So be quick to listen without wrecking your hands on the pew in front of you. You do this, just go quick to listen and then slow to speak. Ready? Quick to listen, slow to speak. I know I hate when pastors do this too, but stay with me one more time. Ready? Quick to listen, slow to speak. 
James, a real quick background as we get into this, this, uh, this phrase, as we just read, is something that pops up in Seven Habits of Highly Effective People and about any other book about communication ever. And it's one of those things that we forget is rooted in the scripture and was written around 62 AD. Uh, and James, this author who is Jesus' brother, James, uh, who is persecuted, uh, who is called, uh, we're told in church history, James the Just, deeply, deeply loved, um, <coughs> who is, uh, finds himself persecuted at the end of his life, martyred, according to church tradition. And he writes this letter to the church about how they're supposed to relate to, to, uh, to each other. Just before he goes to his death, he's writing to this community that uh, we think he helped start or was a part of starting. And he, he, right out of the gate in chapter one, wants them to know uh, how to relate. He wants them to know how to take care of one another. And he writes to the whole community, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. This, even that is significant who he's writing to. This was not just the men in the community. Women at this time had so few rights uh, had no real opportunities to lead. They often weren't in these sorts of rooms where wisdom is being passed down. And right out of the gate in the early church, we see this just powerful, powerful egalitarian picture of men and women gathered together. We're told at the birth of the church that you see men and women being empowered in the gifts right out of the gate. And so James writes, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Take note of this. And so I want to begin in talking about listening and how it relates in a minute to emotional health, that this is like about prioritizing, being quick to listen and slow to speak is about first and foremost having a set of priorities, like making sure that this out of the gate is the first thing that we do when we interact with one another. And in so many ways, I could just walk off the stage now and be done. When this, is the, when this passage got kind of put on my heart to dive into for this part of the series, and when I began to read a, a bit about it, uh, there's like a, a kind of a text, Emotionally Healthy uh, Relationships by Pete Cesaro. Um, as we are, uh, and this has sort of been a bit of a guide for us as we're going through this series. And he doesn't really spend any time on this passage, and then God kept bringing me back to it. Like, if we're going to talk about listening, let's talk about how in the opening, opening paragraph of a letter to the early church about how they are to get along with one another and care for one another and actually love each other deeply, how to be a healthy community, he prioritizes, hey, first, before anything else, be quick to listen, which is funny if you think about how do you listen quickly? Like, really, really quick, listen. Like, l listen in the fastest way possible. Funny. Listen in the fact, like, this is to be your priority. Race to listening. Race to it. How many of you find this so difficult? Because you just got so many good ideas. Right? We got so many good things to say. This idea of slow to speak, literally in the ancient um, Greek, is to be late, to be late. Um, 
And, and so I would add that if you have to then say something, you want to be a person who is curious. In the Psalms, it talks about how we as humans, there's like a depth to our souls and an intricate, and like a, a vast intricacy as to who we are as people. And so if you have to say anything else, be curious. We see this in, in, our, in our rabbi, the person that we want to follow, that we're becoming. If you're here and you're a father of Jesus, we want to be apprentices of. He's a master of Socratic learning. Uh, sorry, Socratic teaching, which is uh, simply a way of saying he just asks questions. He asks questions and then he asks more questions. He's interested. I mean, Jesus, the one who knows the right answers, it's almost like Jesus doesn't come into situations over and over to be right. He just simply comes to understand. I want to understand. Help me understand. If we're going to be quick to listen and we're going to be late, we're going to be late to speak, even in our lateness of speaking, are we going to, to ask questions, to poke around? Are we going to be slow to be right? That phrase right there, slow to be right, has been, um, I'd say, like up there in the top five, like lifelong projects that I have like, going on in my life. Slow to be right. It's like when it's anyone who have kids, um, you have, as a parent, you have wisdom, you have age, you have insight, and you're talking often to someone that doesn't even have their like full frontal lobe development has not even happened yet. And then you wonder, like, you ask, like, why won't my kids talk to me? I was meeting with somebody recently who has some preteen kids. Uh, I, myself, as I have just really young kids, so I didn't have a whole lot to offer, but I was hearing them say over and over, like, they just won't talk to me. They just won't talk to me. I want them to, like, to, to, to trust me. And I, the more and more we talked and explored, and I tried to do my best to be quick to listen and slow to speak and poke around, uh, it dawned on me like how easily it is how you can be right and, and, and produce so much wrong in a relationship. Like you could be, you can, <laughs> one way to say it maybe is you can write somebody right out the door. You can write a relationship right out the door. You can write an employee right out of your company. You can write that kid right out of your house. You can be right and right and right. And if you're honest with yourself and you want to hold fast to that command, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, then you know that you want to be understood more than you want to be told what's right. I know very few people who, <laughs> who actually want people to speak to them like they speak to other people. We can write and be right and be right and produce so much wrong in a relationship. In fact, if you want someone, right, we know this, to be open to our rightness, we actually have to listen and have to be open and have to allow that person to know that we heard them. Like you might say, be one of those people like, you, I know, I know I'm right. I know I'm right. Especially when we're talking to our kids. 
especially maybe when we're like talking on a subject that we know a lot about or we assume we're far more emotionally mature than the person we're talking to or we know we have the facts. And as we dive into this a little bit more, I'm hoping that we're going to unearth some of the things inside us that actually drive that desire to be right. James would say, be quick, quick, quick to listen, slow to speak. And then says, be slow to become angry. And I was thinking about this, why this follows this. This is both a result and a decision. To be slow to anger is a result of being slow to speak. And it's, and it's a decision. It's a way that we guard against. I'm going to be slow to anger, which is going to guard against my need to speak quickly. Because we jump to validation and we jump to self Rightness. Self-righteousness this means self-rightness. Before taking a moment to consider you might be wrong. Slow to become angry. The word there is essentially like hasty. Hasty. We, 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 want, we, we, are, we default almost to become being misinformed, coming to relationally destructive conclusions. See, what happens is as a result of our being slow to speak so often is what produces then a result of that is we are slow to be angry because we don't just jump to conclusions. We don't take that person's first emotional response. I don't know if any of you are like me, but I feel like um, Corey calls it my lawyer mode, my wife. My lawyer mode is basically, I, I, I do this subconsciously, but I'm trying to catch, catch the person, right? If you come at me a little strong, like, hey, you said that thing. Or like, I will recall the thing that was said in the first 45 seconds as they're just slowly, she's just slowly starting to get out what she actually thinks about something and maybe slightly missteps or says something a little harshly. And it's just like I pin it somewhere in my brain that goes, I gotcha. Anyone else do this? Am I alone? Yeah. It's those moments when I'm actually slow to just fire back at the first response that actually produces quietness and gentleness and peace in my heart. This opening part of the text, this is the equation. Maybe you could say it like this. The longer you listen, the more you learn, the less angry you'll become. The longer you listen, the more you will learn and the less angry you will become. Quick to listen, slow to speak. The longer you listen, the more that you will learn and the less angry you'll actually become. I want to make an observation, an obvious one maybe at this point, is maybe you're imagining having this discussion with an employee or with a spouse or with a child or with a friend. Everything that everyone does and says makes sense to them. I know, it's radical. Can I say this again? I have a feeling you didn't catch it. Everything that everyone does makes and says makes sense to them. Got it? Um, Republicans, Democrats. It's been a hard week, amen? <laughs> Wherever you land on whatever, it's been a hard week. These Republicans over here, 
the way they think about the world and their view on policy, politics, a number of things, guess what? It makes sense to them. Got it? I feel like no one got this, or it's just not that profound. <laughs> I don't get it. It makes sense to them. <laughs> everything that everyone says makes sense to them. Everything that everyone believes makes sense to them. So when you say things in, a, in an argument, or when you're on social media and you say things like, I don't know why they do that. I don't know why they say that. I don't know why they believe that. I have this great move, great move, solid, solid husband move, where I'm like, Corey, like literally I could pull in a hundred people into the room right now and they would all agree with me. I don't know why you're saying that. It's a great move. She responds super well to it. <laughs> Think about that phrase for a minute. I don't know why they believe that, say that, think that. Who needs an education in that moment? I don't know why they think that. Who needs an education? You. Quick to listen, slow to speak. Everyone has good reasons for why they believe what they believe. And to learn requires questions. It requires questions. Quick to listen, to ask questions. Be late. Be slow in what you say. And as you even begin to speak, to ask questions of what that person is thinking, I know this is stuff you learned in kindergarten, but this is critical to being emotionally healthy people in emotionally healthy relationships. Seek first to understand, then be understood. Again, this has been codified in so many books. Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, a book that's been around for like, I think it's made its way through like three generations at this point. Like, like seek to understand. Like this is a book written about really the workplace and being effective. Your first move is to understand the other person and understand where they're coming from, then be understood. I know that everyone, again, in this room is so easy to accept this, but let me just put the challenge to you. Think about how hard it is for you to put your, like being understood on the back burner. Especially when you know you're right. Especially when you're sure the other person has wronged you. To be first to try to understand them. This is a, simply one aspect of picking up your cross and following Jesus. This is laying down your life in practical terms. I think most people actually are willing to like throw themselves in front of a train to like save a child or, or like, you know, stand up in front of the person robbing the house and sacrifice themselves so their family lives. I actually think those like big moves of sacrifice are some way easier, mostly because they're just like a mental experiment and because so much adrenaline would kick in, you wouldn't even know like you would just do it. I think this is the stuff that actually is the hardest 
when it comes to loving your neighbor and loving your spouse and loving your kids in a Jesus-like way. There is a death that happens when you go, I'm gonna be understood second. I'm gonna prioritize listening. It's slow to speak. A resolve that has come in my heart, honestly, very recently, has been, I am not going to criticize what I don't understand. I'm not going to criticize what I don't understand. The number one rule, anyone ever take like a debate class? I like love debate. Like I, just love, like I wish I had gotten like further into competitions and stuff like that. Anyone ever do that stuff? The number one rule is that you have to accurately represent your opponent's take. Right, which is basically the problem in our news media and all of our like discourse right now socially. Is like one side doesn't recognize their own arguments in terms of the way the other side is representing them. They're like that? You're saying I think that? I don't think that at all. That is probably the biggest problem we're facing right now is we're criticizing straw men and inventions of each other's side so often. A resolve in our hearts that I'm not going to criticize what I don't understand. When we do this, we become so much more present to the person that we're talking to. And presence is such a big part of Jesus' ministry. This is how we make peace in the world. Like little moment by little moment by little moment. This is how we make peace. We become present to one another. We sit and we listen. This is why, and it's interesting to bring this up in Black History Month, there are many, and I, I don't, I'm going to say I understand, I don't understand to, to a degree, but I have had a number of conversations with black friends and specifically black colleagues of mine who have talked about the exhaustion that so many feel in trying to explain systemic racism are trying to explain why we are not out of the woods and <laughs> when it comes to, to, uh, to how we wrestle with all sorts of things from laws to, um, to just what's in the cultural air right now around um, the race divide in our nation. And so there is an exhaustion that some of our sisters and brothers feel who, who are black. And yet, I have found, and this is again, I'm thinking of one colleague in particular, who will go out of his way to go, but this is a big part of our, our place. We need to be from a place of health, but we need to be bridge builders. And so it is those folks that um, are sacrificing and laying down their life in the black community who, have the, who are mustering the strength and love and grace to sit often with the white community and sit again and sit again, and sit again, and be present to them to help make sense of the brokenness and the injustice and the experience of what it is to be black in America. There's a power and presence that makes peace when you become present with the other side or just present with the other in whatever dynamic. There is a power to this because it's like Jesus. You become present. You, you incarnate. 
in their space. This is how we make space. Now, we could end here. James, though, isn't finished. Because this is bigger than just everyone getting along. James uh, insinuates that there's like a divine agenda attached to all of this. You guys with me? Yeah? There's a divine agenda. It's not just like, here's how to be. Some of you, and it's not, not bad. You may be processing this through the lens of like, here's how I'm going to be calmer so I can be more convincing. Or this is a really good ploy or scheme of how to get my way. Or like this, like, this is the sort of stuff that I read all the time in like different books of like how to win people. And this helps me think about how to win people and have a healthy organization. But James actually explains why, and he says this. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. There's three agendas in any conversation. There's my agenda, the person I'm talking to's agenda, my spouse's, my friends, my employee, my coworker, my child. There's their agenda, and then there's a third. If you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, there's God's agenda. There's my rightness, there's your rightness, and then there's God. And it appears as though in this situation, God is basically saying, I'm not after your rightness. My anger produces the rightness I, like, like, whatever frustration, anger, rightness I have, my anger produces my rightness. Your anger produces your rightness. I want everyone to know I'm right. I want this person I'm talking to to know I'm right. They want me to know that they're right. And James seems to be saying, you want to be right at each other, but God wants you to be right with each other. You can say it like this. God doesn't want you to be right at each other, but with each other. Jesus says it like this. As I have loved you, you are to love one another. Jesus says, if I have loved you, you're to love one another. Maybe you could say it like this. Jesus doesn't come to be right in that self-righteous sense. That would have taken a few seconds. Jesus shows up, explains everything. It wouldn't have ended the way that it ended on the cross. Your mission isn't to be right in that self-rightness way either. We're told Jesus came to reconcile us to God and to one another. It's almost like there's a subtext here for how we're to relate to one another. Quit being right at each other and get right with each other. Quit needing to be right at each other and get right with each other. There's a lot of complexities to this and a lot of asterisks we could throw on that statement. But as followers of Jesus who are called to be peacemakers, not just peacekeepers, this is about valuing the relationship and our shared humanity before our current opinion that we have that probably is going to fade in a few minutes anyway. Anybody? How many of you have changed what you think about something and it's been like less than a year? Anybody? Whether it's some ideal, some political viewpoint, Maybe it's just the way you think about your relationship or think about your spouse or think about parenting. It's putting that relationship first. It's betting on grace first before you bet on being right. This is hard. Maybe another way to say it is this. If the two of you aren't right, if the two of you aren't right, it probably doesn't matter who is actually right. Come on. 
trying to give you some sticky statements here. If the two of you aren't right with each other, then it probably doesn't matter in that particular circumstance, like actually who is right. And then James keeps going, therefore, get rid of all moral filth. If so much of your life is about proving how right you are, if that's all you're after, if you've just got self-rightness all over you, James is like, get it off. It's ugly, uninviting, and won't build the bridges and reconcile you to each other, which is part of why I came. Get that moral filth off of you. Self-rightness is a moral issue. Isn't it true that violence between friends and domestic violence and violence in the workplace starts with just talking? It starts with conversation. It starts with the way that we relate together and a lack of presence and just banging against each other. James says, you want to follow Jesus, you want to be reconciled, get it off you. Get it off you. And then he says, and the evil that is so prevalent, the word there is essentially malice, a desire to harm, to get even. I like that. Like, it makes much more sense of the text to get even. It's like, even if I win, the relationship loses. Anyone ever been in a fight where you got to the end and you're like, ha, see, see, Joe, I was right. And then Joe just like, yeah, you, you, you were right. Who feels great after a fight like that? I've never been in a fight with their spouse and it lands. It's like clearly someone's right. But the way that whole thing happened produced such a chasm between the two of you. Anybody? Everyone's like, no. Sometimes even if we win, the relationship loses. Lastly, James says, humbly accept the word implanted in you. The word planted in you, which can save you. Which can save you. Take off the always I have to be right. Put on humility. That recognition that we, again, is more important than just me. Being right with you is more important than being right. James is saying, you're followers of Jesus, right? Those of you who are here and followers of Jesus, you've got this frame. You've got this way of understanding the world. The God of the universe came to you and was present with you. Step into that basic frame. Take hold of this bigger story and all that it communicates because it can save you. This idea that you want to become a follower of this Jesus who shows up in flesh and blood, this God who shows up in flesh and blood amongst you, who shows you what it is to be present and make himself known among you and was present with us and reconciles us back. Like, access that frame. That word was planted in you, and it can save you. I'm not sure I can yell loud enough to convince some of you that this little thing, be quick to listen, slow to speak, can save your relationships, and save you from regret, and save you from having to apologize again. Trust that you can lay down your life, starting with laying down your need to be right all the time and right, right out of the gate so you don't write people out of your life. This frame, this word that was planted in you, 
One way you could describe it, where I want to go as we close here, Philippians 2, 6 to 8. Talking about Jesus, and the writer Paul says, who being in very nature God, Jesus being the very nature of God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself, he made himself, he made himself by taking the very nature of a, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by being obedient to death, even death on a cross. God was so concerned. He's present with us and he enters our world. So when we choose to incarnate, that's what this passage is talking about, like incarnating in this world is what God did. He makes himself known in the flesh and blood. Uh, Eugene Peterson describes as God moved into the neighborhood. And when we do this, when we're talking with somebody else, when we incarnate, we do what Jesus did. We hang between our world and the world of another person. We remain faithful to who we are. We're not losing ourselves. While at the same time, we're entering in the world of another. We're listening. We're listening at a heart level with empathy. We're dialed into the words and nonverbal communication of another person. Like we, we give the person our full attention. We step into their world and we listen, not just to what they say, but their emotions, and we empathize. Three, we avoid judging, interpreting, and fixing. Now, I want to stop here for a second. I've realized that a big part, a big thing that holds me back from being a good listener is I don't know how to listen and not agree with what I'm hearing. I don't want to struggle with this. Like you can listen and be present and not have to agree with what you're hearing. (laughs) I I think for a long time I didn't know how to listen and not want to fix everything. My first move is like, all right, well, well, if we just do this, 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 this. Maybe that's partly just the plight of a pastor, those of you who are counselors or things like that. I find a lot of people struggle with that. For whatever reason, I find a lot of men struggle with that. It's like, I need to fix this. I'm like waiting to talk. Yeah, 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 I've got like six things that you could possibly do. Try it out. I got you. I didn't know how to listen with my soul and not my ego. Like I'm listening, thinking about how can I, how can I present myself and share something really awesome or good or whole to them. I'm listening with my ego and not listening just to someone who wants to be present with them. Incarnational listening requires presence. Fixing people does not work. The impulse to fix each other comes actually, I think, from an insidious place. I know it feels like it comes from a good place, but there's just a dark side to what's happening in our heads. It's like, if you take my advice, you'll solve your problem. There's something that plays on our ego there. If you take our advice, we'll solve our problem. If you take my advice and you fail, you just didn't try hard enough because it was really good advice. Come on, anybody? (laughs) If you take my advice, I know at least I did the best I could and I'm covered no matter how things come out and I don't need to worry about you. Look, I know I'm covered. I did my best. 
didn't work out. At least I feel good about it. When we try to fix each other, this is so often what's happening. In an interesting way, it's how, um, it's actually how we hold each other at bay. This makes sense? Sometimes our impulse, sometimes, our impulse to fix is actually a way of holding each other at bay and not being present and listening. I'm not talking about like being a sports coach or being a boss when you just have to like do X, Y, or Z. I'm not saying all desires to fix come from some broken place. But so often when we're actually in a discussion, we rush right to, well, I know I've got some good things and why wouldn't we want to have like an active conversation about how to fix this? Because we assume way too much. And we actually creates a distance between us because we don't have to like sit in their hurt and we don't have to ask more questions and we don't have to be confronted with the idea that we just may not know the answer because we're not them. And because we're not God. We can hear others when we are so quick to want to fix it. And when that actually becomes a way distancing ourselves. Henry Nouwen says this, from experience you know that those who care for you become present to you. When they listen, they listen to you. When they speak, you know they speak to you. Their presence is a healing presence because they accept you on your terms and they encourage you to take your own life seriously. This is what Jesus does at the well. If you're familiar with that story, he comes across a Gentile woman at the well. She starts wanting to get into a theological discussion and talk up here. And Jesus just starts asking her questions, breaking all sorts of social norms, talking to this woman. He apparently knows all this stuff about her and he's trying to help her own where she's at, own why she's at the well in the middle of the day because she doesn't want to be seen by others because she's ostracized a bit by society because she has jumped from man to man to man to man to man. And so she wants to get into a theological discussion about Jews talking to Gentiles and Jesus is like, I know why you're here. And he just asks questions and he asks questions and he's present with her and present with her in a way and a space and in a culture that actually costs him a lot. And he is simply present with her. He just wanted to know why she was out there and what's going on below the surface. This is what it means to love well, to listen well, to set aside your own prerogatives and take on the form of a servant. James is inviting us, don't settle for being right. Make things right. Jesus, the brother, James, the brother of Jesus, is showing us what Jesus is like. This is what God did. Sent into the world as one who could not speak. We believe the God of the universe, the Logos, the spirituality behind everything, made itself first known to us as a baby who couldn't talk who is simply present with us, a fragile child. He didn't send a prophet out of the gate. He didn't send a wordsmith. He didn't send a military leader. He didn't send a president, but a speechless baby. 30 years experiences life and funerals and celebrations and watches the Roman Empire dominate his people. And he listens and he experiences life just like you and me. 
And then at 30, he starts to speak. And people flock to him. The people who are not like him flock to him because they feel understood. One writer says that people were amazed at the way he spoke because he didn't speak like preachers of the law. He had a different authority. People who were nothing like Jesus hung around him. And he invited them to follow him and it changed the world. If you're here and you're not a follower of Jesus, this is what we believe about the very ground of your being and the nature of reality that is made known to us in Jesus. And you can begin following him now simply by saying yes. Yes to the God who listens. Yes to the God who is present. Yes to the God who is not far off. Yes to the God who loved you first. Yes to the God who has your heart. close with this. David uh, Augsburger says this in his book, Caring Enough to Be, to Hear and Be Heard. He says, being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person, they are almost indistinguishable. You know what listening is? Listening is wanting to hear. Found, I know. But listening is wanting to hear. And so maybe some of you need to know that there is the God who is present with you who simply wants to hear. Maybe this is why God says, confess your sins to one another and confess your sins to me. Maybe he says, this is why he says, worship me. Maybe why he invites us to draw near to him and I'll draw near to you. It's like he's already done all that he can do. He's like, I... I I want to listen. You got to speak now. I'm here. And maybe for some of you today, God is like beating you up a little bit in love, saying, like, hey, you don't really want to hear your spouse or your kid or your employees or anybody in your life because you've got this going on or this going on or because dad did X or mom did X. And I don't know whatever reasons you have, but as a follower of Jesus, you're invited. You're invited to listen. Quick to listen. Slow to speak. May we be a church that wants to hear from God. A church that wants to hear from each other. And lastly, a church that wants to hear from their own souls. There's something about this art of listening some of us talk so much because we don't want to hear our internal dialogue. We talk so much because we're not really ready for what's underneath the surface. We talk and busy ourselves so much because we're not really interested in what's under there or assume it's all good. We need to become safe people for each other. That would be known about us. that We are a listening community, a community that is present with the hurting and the marginalized and the broken in our world. And if we want to be that for our world in that big sense, we got to be that for each other in our home groups, in our friendships, in our families. Lord Jesus Christ, as we close our time, as we take just a few minutes to, to listen, 
we sing, Lord, you have my heart. We know that you're present with us, that you're here. And we will listen, we will search for yours. As we worship you in this last moment, as we listen in these last moments, God, I'm asking you, would your spirit fall? Anybody in this room right now who just has a little bit of faith, that they would be open to you speaking to them in profound ways, giving them images and words and insight, Lord. Anybody in this room who maybe is not a follower of Jesus, this may be the moment where they say yes to you. They just say yes. If, if God, you're really, you're the God who listens. All right, here we go. I'm gonna talk. I'm gonna talk. God, if you're here, would you, would you make yourself known to me? God, if you're here, like if you're present with me, if you actually are listening and out there, Lord, I want you to know I want, I want you. I want that love. I want to know I'm forgiven. I want to know there's nothing I have to do to, to earn, Lord, favor. I know that I want to be walking on the path that leads to goodness and joy and life. Those who have ears to hear, let them listen now as we sing, as we worship together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.